0: Okay today we are starting a uh, new series new series for the new year in the book of Proverbs okay before we do let me ask you a question who do you think shapes people's characters thinking and behavior today okay we could make a list couldn't we Be- beginning you might begin with parents Okay, or, or with teachers, or with friends, or with work colleagues, or, or the media, you know, celebrities, podcasters, social influencers, maybe even politicians, having an effect on people's behaviour and the way they think. And if you think about it, ancient Israel would not have been much different from that, minus the podcasters, of course. But just, as we begin this, just take a look at Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 18. Because Jeremiah is writing around 600 BC, 500 BC, and he has been warning of a judgment that is coming against, the, against Jerusalem's cultural elite, against the culture formers of his day. Okay, but that warning had not been well received. And his enemies say, come, let us make plots against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Priests, prophets, and the wise. Okay, three groups of people who are shaping the thinking of the time. Only the whole point of Jeremiah's message is that their influence has become corrupting. Okay, but it wasn't always that way. In fact, the Bible suggests that you need those three groups, those three things speaking into your life if you are to live life well. In fact, the Bible gives you all three. It gives you the law with God's commands. Do this, don't do that. It gives you the prophets, God speaking into specific situations. Thus says the Lord. And it gives you the accumulated wisdom of God's people in books like Job, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And those wisdom books, and the book of Proverbs in particular, which we're going to be looking at, They deal with the nitty-gritty of life. Stuff like our characters or our relationships. The kind of stuff that is too small to hit the radar of the law or the prophets. But the kind of stuff that makes all the difference to the quality of your life. And how you come across to others or even to yourself. Stuff like, do you talk too much? Or what are you like in the morning? Or what what are you like as an employee? Or what would she be like if you employed her? How does he manage his time? What can you learn from that? How do you manage your desires? What will help strengthen your relationships and what will help destroy them? And it applies wisdom to the minutiae of life, from things as small as a passing comment, to bigger things like business practices, right up to the metaphysical and the profound and the creation of the universe. And it applies wisdom to all of that. But of course, that begs the question, doesn't it? What is wisdom? What does it mean for you to be wise and live life wisely? Now, we might answer that by saying, well, you know what, I think wisdom is that sort of experience you gain through life. Or if you think of a wise person, you might think it's having the right answers or the right advice at the right time. Interestingly, I think Proverbs sees things differently. Because the word it uses for wisdom is the word hokma. It's the skill of a master craftsman. Because if you watched someone working with precious metal or embroidering fabric or sculpting a design and they were at the top of their game, you would say, they've got hokma. They've got wisdom, they've got skill. And Proverbs wants to teach you that art of living. It wants to teach you that craftsmanship applied to living your life, how to live life with skill. Because no one, I I don't think anyone, sets out to make a mess of their life, to do that deliberately. But it happens, or if not a mess, you can find yourself stagnating rather than growing. And Proverbs wants to come alongside you and say, hey, whatever your past, whatever your present, I want to show you how you can live life well, how you can live it with skill. Now, the honest truth is that only one person has ever done that. So as we go through this book, I hope what we're going to see is how Proverbs points us to Jesus. The one person who has lived life with skill. The one person who Paul says has become for us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So I hope you're going to see that Proverbs points us to him. Now, before we get going, just look at the very first verse, Proverbs 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And Solomon's writing around 1000 BC, a bit after that. And he's the principal author of the book, but he's not the only one. Two other men, Agur and Lemuel, they also get mentioned alongside a anonymous wise men and the book was obviously still be, the book itself tells us that it was still being edited in the reign of Hezekiah which is around 700 BC but all of those authors okay all all of the stuff that they are writing it all comes together to give you a study course on how to live wisely and it begins with chapters 1 to 9 and the choice that you face the choice between wisdom and folly and how your life depends on making the right choice and then every subsequent proverb is like a maxim it's not a it's not a cast iron promise They're like maxims, they are observations on life, crystallised down, condensed down into bite-sized chunks to help train you in life. Now we're not going to go through the whole book, instead we are going to look at some of the key subjects it raises, and we're going to begin with maybe the, the greatest of all subjects it could possibly raise, which is God and you. Because I think Proverbs provokes us to ask and teaches us how to answer three crucial questions. Firstly, who is God? Who is he? Secondly, how does he involve himself in your life? And thirdly, given that, how should you respond to him? Okay, first one then. Who is God? Now, if you just flip through uh, proverbs, I think you could come away with two misconceptions. Okay, the first one is that life is all about you. And it's all about you being healthy and wealthy. And here are some principles to help you achieve that. That could be the first misconception. The second one would be that if you, if you want to do that, and if you, if you just add a bit of spirituality to your life, you get a bit of God into your life, then things will go well. It'll help you achieve those goals. Sue and I were laughing at breakfast uh, the other day. We turned our packet of breakfast cereal around, and it tells us, eat granola and do 10 minutes of yoga every day, and everything else will come good. (laughs) Is that the book of Proverbs? Just add a bit of spirituality to your life and everything will be fine. It's not, okay, Proverbs is anything but a self-help manual. Instead, it understands why humanity as a whole and maybe our individual lives can end up in a mess. You see, in Genesis chapter three, Eve gives in to the serpent's temptation to eat from the tree that the Lord has told her not to. But she only does so after seeing that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, but wise independent of God. Wise in the sense of deciding for herself what's right and wrong, deciding for herself what's good for her to do. And Proverbs fundamentally warns us against that kind of autonomy. It tells you Hey, guess what? You are not God. In fact, it tells us that to live, that to truly live life with skill requires that we center our lives upon God and not upon ourselves. That it's a life ordered according to His word, whether or not it pays, whether or not it's efficient, whether or not it leads to success whether or not it gets the applause of the influential others in your life. And specifically, it teaches us that the person who's going to live life with skill understands five crucial things about God. Firstly, you can know him personally. You really can. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we're going to look at fear later. Okay, Just for the moment, look at Lord in capitals. It's the way our English Bibles translate the Hebrew name Yahweh. That's God's covenant name. It's the name by which his people can know him. Now, have you ever experienced talking to a friend about... Uh, somebody who you don't really know, you, you know of them, maybe you have to work for them, and uh, you're talking about Mr. or Doctor or Professor so-and-so, and the other person, your friend, goes, oh, I know David, he's a good friend of mine. Now, they might be just trying to impress you, or they might actually be telling the truth. But what if you could say that about God? What if when others talk about God as some distant deity, you could know him personally in genuine and deep relationship? And Proverbs says you can. In fact, it says you must if you really want to live life with skill, if you want to navigate through life with skill, that he's not just God, he's my God. Now, would that kind of familiarity breed contempt? And the answer is no. Because secondly, the person who wisely navigates the complexities of life understands God is our creator. And they let that influence their actions and their interactions. Look at chapter 22, verse 2. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Now, have you ever found yourself speaking to someone in person or on the end of the phone, like someone in a call centre, in ways that you would never dream of talking to your boss or to your friend or to me? This is one of the things my girls pick me up on, the way I speak to people in call centres. Why do we do that? Why do we treat people like that? Because we, why do I, maybe you don't, why do I do that? Because we develop these hierarchies based on status or possessions or achievements or the type of how somebody lives or the kind of clothes that they wear or the kind of car that they drive. And we value them based on these things. And we think, okay, this person is of less value than me. So I talk to them as if they are. Proverbs says, you have more in common than you can imagine, beginning with the fact that God is there and your maker. And that tells you that whatever success you encounter in life, you are not self-made, you're God-made. And your intellect or your health or your aptitude for work are given to you by him. And when you understand that, it humbles you at the same time as filling your heart with gratitude. So he's your maker, but so he is of the person that you are tempted to look down on. They're also God's workmanship and that gives them dignity and worth and should profoundly change the way we treat them. Okay, but knowing that God is your maker does something else as well to the wise person. As Augustine put it, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. And so the truly wise person, the person who's going to live life with skill, who's going to navigate through the complexities of life with, with skill, they're not just humble, though they are, They're not just grateful, though they are. They're not just kind towards others, though they are. They also know that true satisfaction does not come from created things, the kind of stuff you can buy, the kind of stuff you can earn, the kind of stuff that you can fill your house with. That is not how true satisfaction comes. It comes from being in deep relationship with the one who has made you, who you've been made for, Thirdly, wisdom knows that God is holy and righteous. We've been singing about it already. Look at chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And Holy One there is plural. It's what's called a plural of majesty. It's why Isaiah In his vision, in Isaiah chapter 6, sees and hears the angels calling out before God, holy, 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 three times holy, is the Lord God almighty. Holy in every dimension. And the person who wants to live life well gets that. The truly wise person understands that God is not an extension or reflection of myself. God isn't just there to sprinkle his blessing on my decisions or what I want or what I think is good or what I think is bad, what I want to do or feel or say. He is utterly different from me. He's holy. And the wise person gets that. And he's righteous. Look at 21 verse 12. The righteous one observes the house of the wicked. He throws the wicked down to ruin. Okay, so God's not just holy. He's also just. And he will see that justice is done. And so if you and I are going to live life wisely, we've got to know, we've got to understand that the external appearances of success, like here, beautiful houses, okay, They're not the last word. Instead, there is a holy and just judge and a judgment to come, and that will, when we understand that, that will deeply impact the way that we view and pursue success. Fourthly, living life with skill means grasping that God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Now, have you ever walked down a farm track or a a forest track where the tractors, you know, the agricultural vehicles have made these deep ruts in in the path? Okay, well, the word for ways here is the word for wagon tracks, It's those ruts worn in a road through repeated use. And so Proverbs teaches us that God doesn't just see our hearts or our individual sins, he also sees the ruts, those well-worn paths of our repeated mistakes, the the habitual sin patterns of our hearts what the Book of Common Prayer calls the devices and desires of our hearts. And we may wonder, you know, when we stumble again, we may wonder, why, do I, why did I do that again? Why do I keep making the same mistakes? God doesn't wonder that. He reads us like a book. And he sees through all the layers of hurt or hiding or self-justification and Proverbs teaches us that we cannot escape his gaze. Proverbs 15 verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Now I don't know about uh, those of you who are parents, but there are times as a parent, I think, when we wish we had eyes in the back of our head. Okay, where we could see things that we can't actually see now. But we can't. We're constrained by our bodies. Okay, God is not. We can't see further than the horizon. God has no horizon. As the writer to the Hebrews says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, but you could know everything. You could see everything and still be still be powerless to do anything about it, but not God. Proverbs 21 verse 30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Okay, what's it teaching us? It's teaching us that if we want to live life wisely, we've got to understand that no amount of strategizing, no amount of planning, no amount of policy making, can outmaneuver God. He always has the last word and it's always the wisest. So the wise person gives him the first word. What does God have to say about this? Because fifthly, living life skillfully means knowing that God is sovereign. Look at chapter 16. The Lord has made everything for its purpose even the wicked for the day of trouble. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, God is sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over your plans, and he is even sovereign over seemingly chance events like the toss of a coin. Now, does that mean that to live life wisely amounts to nothing more than passive resignation? You know, que Sarah, whatever will be. Or inshallah, if God wills it. No. It means that the wise person, if we're going to live life skillfully, we understand we can live and plan and strategize with confidence and with security, because we know, even if we can't see it, that everything lies in our Father's hands, and he's working it all to see his plans and his purposes established. And that brings us to the second question that the wise person can answer. If we listen to Proverbs. Second question then, how does God involve himself in your life. we look at chapter 17, verse 3. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Now, in our culture at the moment, you are told that true love means to let the other person be and express themselves. You be you. Proverbs teaches us that God loves you way too much to let you be you. He loves you way too much to leave you as you are. In fact, as a master craftsman purifying precious metal, he is at work in your life refining you. Now, the problem is, is that that can feel like you are in a furnace, So to live life skillfully is to realize that even setbacks, as much as this success I'm enjoying, even this setback I'm experiencing, as much as this success, even this criticism that's coming towards me, as much as this praise that I am receiving, is given by God for my growth. And so the wise person doesn't grow bitter when life is like a crucible or a trial. Instead, they're asking, what is God trying to teach me through this? What's he trying to reveal to me about myself? When this person points this out to me about my life or about my responses or about my attitudes, what, what do I need to hear here and see change? Because God's involvement in your life, Proverbs teaches us, is that of a loving father. Proverbs three eleven to 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights." Now, when life is not going the way we want it, we can think, you know, why is God letting this happen or not letting this happen? I thought he loved me. Proverbs says it is precisely because he does love you that he is letting it happen or not happen. And that is not the discipline of the justice system. It's a discipline of the family. It's not punishment, it is him wanting to see you and me grow in his family likeness. And he doesn't leave you stumbling around in the dark as to what that looks like. Okay, Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. What does that teach you? It tells you that God speaks. But God is a God who reveals himself. He has a word to say. He reveals himself through his word. And every word of his word is true. Now, I don't know, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, or even if you are a Christian, you might hear all of this stuff and say, you know, all of this stuff about... Me not deciding for myself what's right and wrong, him being the judge, me having to live my life according to the Bible, that sounds like a straitjacket to me. I want freedom, not walls. Okay, sure, but the Bible tells us that total freedom is not freedom, it's slavery. And the walls of God's word aren't a prison, but they are a fortress, they are a stronghold. Because as you go through life, you will face attack. You will face enemies. You will have to fight dragons. But when you know God through his word, that'll give you a shield to fight with, Proverbs says. You will find a refuge. So Proverbs 3, 25 to 26 Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Okay, so the wise person, if we're going to live life with skill, we've got to learn to know that our confidence is not in ourselves and it's not in others. Our confidence is in God because How's he at work in our lives? He's protecting us from traps. And that has the power to keep you from being paralyzed by fear about the future. Instead, you know, he's my security. And he is going to see me safely through. So the person who's beginning to live life with skill has a confidence about them, has a lightness of step about them. Because they know God's their security. And as he does see us safely through, he's also the one who gives you the ability to live life with skill in the first place. Proverbs 2, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. In other words, as you grow in relationship with him, as you are hearing him speak to you and revealing himself to you through his word, wisdom is going to be his gift to you. Okay, so given all of that, given who he is, given how he's at work in our lives, how should you respond to him? Third question. How should we respond? And Proverbs tells us in two overarching ways. Firstly, by fearing him. Proverbs 9 verse 10 again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Okay, so to fear God is to know him, but to know him is to love him and to love him is to fear to grieve him. Charles Bridges, the 19th century pastor, wrote... The child of God only has one dread, to offend his father. The child of God only has one desire, to please and to delight him. And so the fear of God is a happy, awe-filled reverence for the God who we love. So, skill in living, Proverbs teaches us, does not come through life hacks. Doesn't even come through spiritual practices. Doesn't even come amazingly through good reading practices. It comes through knowing and loving the one who made you and who watches over you. And when you do, Proverbs says, it will transform your life. Proverbs 19.23 The fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. Okay, so to love God so much that you fear to grieve him leaves you feeling content because your life is beginning to take on a right order. Okay, but compare that to Proverbs 29 verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare. Okay, so while fearing God brings contentment, fearing what other people think becomes a trap. As Oswald Chambers wrote, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. But when you don't fear God, you fear everything else. Okay, then look at Proverbs fourteen twenty six. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. You see, if you fear what other people think more than what God thinks, you will elevate what our current culture says above what God's word says. And you will either try and duck or reinterpret God's word to make it acceptable to those you're fearful of or to yourself. That could be on sex, could be on gender, could be on marriage, could be on identity, could be on the role of men and women, could be on any number of contemporary or controversial issues. If you do that, your kids will have... And by your kids, I mean you know your kids if you're a parent, our kids in Sunday school, if you're a teacher, if you volunteer in youth, or if you're friends of a family who has kids. If you do that, if you elevate somebody else's authority above God's word, your kids will have no clue who's got the authority. Is it God and his word? Or is it what this influencer? Or what this podcaster, Or what my teacher? Or what my friends? Or what this other person? Or what wider society are saying? Who's got the Who's got the authority? But when you live in the fear of God, your kids will know who's got the authority. They'll know who is God. And amidst all the craziness of life, and things are pretty crazy, they will have a refuge, Proverbs says. That won't just do them good. It'll also do you good, Proverbs 16, verse six. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. For Christmas, Sue gave me a book of um, uh, Augustine's sermons on 1 John. And it is a great read. And and one, I'm just telling you that to plug that book. Okay, and um, one, one line that stood out to me in one of his sermons. Augustine wrote... The whole life of a good Christian is a holy desire. The whole life of a good Christian is a holy desire. A desire to know and to love and to please God. The problem is, we're often desiring other stuff, aren't we? Stuff that's less good but grow in our knowledge of God and our desire for him deepens and desire for this other stuff diminishes. And as Proverbs 3, 7 to 8 says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Okay, but to do that, you can't just fear him, you've got to trust him, which is a second way Proverbs says we should respond. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, Have you ever found yourself thinking or saying something like, OK, that worked before, so I'll do it again, or Everyone else seems to be thinking that, doing that, so that's, maybe that's what I should do as well. And when you are under pressure and you just need to do something, to do it without or with just minimal reference to God is one of the great temptations. It is to lean on our own understanding. But when it says, in all your ways acknowledge him, what it literally says is, in all your ways know him. It's to invite him into every area of your life. And so to live life with skill is not to be paralyzed thinking, okay, is it God's will that I put my left sock on first or my right sock? It is to go through all of life, inviting him through prayer and through getting to know him through his word into every part of your life. Even those bits that are under pressure. And as you do, his word may tell you things that you don't want to hear. But it's precisely then that we need to trust. We've already heard Proverbs 30, verse five, that every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. But look what follows, verse six. So do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you. And when you encounter stuff in God's word that you don't like, the temptation is to try and to get it to say something that is more palatable, to make it say what we want it to say, to add to it. But the wise person knows, do you know what? God might just know more about this than I do. So I'm going to trust him. Okay. Great, you might go, how can I know him well enough to trust him? Because Proverbs makes clear, our life depends on, this is about all of our lives, not just Sunday morning stuff. It's about all of our lives. How can we know him well enough to trust him with every aspect of our lives? Well, When Proverbs uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, that is a name based on God's revelation of himself to Moses that I am who I am. You and I have a maker. God does not. He simply is. I am. Which makes what Jesus says when he came all the more remarkable. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am and the God who made you became one of us. The maker of rich and poor became poor. The the truly trustworthy word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And Isaiah prophesied of him, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And Jesus is the only one who has ever perfectly lived and trusted the father. He's the only one who has truly lived life with skill. It's why Jesus said of himself, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than writings about wisdom is here. It's why Paul says of him that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the reason that you can trust God and love him so much that you fear to grieve him and you put his word first is that at the cross, Jesus went through the crucible of affliction and the furnace of purification for you. And all of your impurity was counted to him so that all of his holiness and his righteousness might be counted to you. And if Proverbs 16, verse six says that by steadfast love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for, It's through Christ's steadfast love. It's through his faithfulness to the Father and to you that all of your sins can be atoned for. All of those ruts, all of those persistent habits. And it's because of him that you can live your days under the favor and the smile of God. So Proverbs says, trust him. And let your love for him grow. And as you do, your skill in life will grow with it. Let's pray.